Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome again this morning to uh, TCC. Such a joy to be together. Uh, we're going to read the Word of God uh, this morning. Uh, we're beginning a new series of messages. Pastor Norb is going to launch us uh, this morning uh, called Transforming Love uh, on the book of First John. It's quite a book. And as I've been reading kind of background and context this week, I I see how deep we're going to have to go to realize the truth of uh, what Jesus, uh, God is saying to us through his word. So 1 John chapter 1, the first chapter, uh, although I know Pastor Norb's not going to get all the way to verse 10 this morning, but let's, let's look at the first chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for bringing us to this hour. We thank you this morning for this portion of your word. It is so direct and so clear and so strong. We pray that we will take heed of this word this morning that you give to us. We thank you for the influence of your word in our hearts and lives, how it shapes us and how as we read it day by day, we, we get to be molded and shaped by the very Word of God, by the eternal life. And Lord, I thank you for Pastor Norb, and I thank you that as he launches us this morning, that uh, your blessing would be upon him, that the anointing of the Holy Spirit would fall on him and upon your Word, and that our hearts will be illuminated to see the truth and to live by the truth. Lord, I thank you for our congregation today. We've come from all walks of life, some here for the very first time today, 
some from very busy weeks, and Lord, uh, some just needing to find a rest in you today because they are weary of heart and weary of mind. And so I pray that there will be a refreshing, Lord, of their spirit today. I pray for insight for those who need guidance, who are wrestling with issues in life and not knowing which way to turn, to the left or to the right. But I pray, God, that there will be a sense, Lord, that you will speak, even in this hour, to bring clarity to situations. I pray for those who need healing and those who will go through surgery even this week, that your hand of grace would be upon them. I pray for those who are disappointed in life by situations that have come to them. And I pray that uh, even today they would find new hope and new joy and new perspective in life because they meet you here today. And I pray for all of us who need your forgiveness. Lord, for we have sinned. And we humbly acknowledge our sin and we confess our sin before you. We do not run away and hide in the dark, but we come into the light and we find that our sins are forgiven and freedom comes and the chains fall off and we find ourselves in a wonderful relationship with you. So God, now open your word to us through your servant for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. It is a, a privilege for me to be able to launch uh, this series based on this book of First John. If you've been attending TCC for any length of time now, you will know, and if you care to track such trivial details, that uh, Pastor Ken does about two-thirds of the preaching and teaching here, and I do about the other third. You'll also know that Pastor Ken typically is the one who takes the lead in developing a study, and then he just allows me to join in and follow along. <clears throat> and so as we go through these series, you will from obviously hear different voices and different styles, but then the theme is always consistent. I say this because this study then is a little bit unusual. I'm actually the one that gets to launch it. And I'm actually pretty excited about that because it shows a measure of confidence that Pastor Ken has in me. Because, you know, if I launch kind of in that direction, and he was intending to go in that direction, well, then he's got the next three weeks to kind of bring us back into that direction. But I'm also excited because I've never actually have studied 1 John as a letter before and in a way of teaching it. Sure, there have been some messages kind of standalone here and there over the years, but I've not worked my way through this letter from front to back. And in actuality, Pastor Ken hasn't either. And he's been at this a lot longer than I have. <laughs> so this will be kind of a new experience for all of us. But now I should also say <clears throat> that we've not laid this series out week by week. It will more or less kind of unfold as we are, are led through it. So I can't tell you that uh, on this Sunday in November we're going to be looking at this particular passage. We'll just kind of go as, as we're led. And we initially had thought that <clears throat> we might just cover this over the next six or seven weeks before we kind of break for Christmas, but I have this sneaky suspicion that uh, we might find ourselves finishing First John after Christmas. Pastor Ken at that time will be on uh, part three of his four-part sabbatical, and, uh, and so, um, well, it'll be me and you and 
maybe we'll call in some additional help as well. But one more comment about this as well. I found myself very overwhelmed at times this week, as Pastor Ken said, just kind of delving into this and reading and studying this week. And it was hard to kind of know exactly where to go with this specific message. And really, this is just uh, an overview or an introduction to the, to the whole letter, uh, as it were. You see, our job as teachers of God's Word is to study and to understand and then to, to pull something together, to present something that will help keep us kind of out of the depths and out of the weeds. And my hope and prayer is that God will empower His Word with His Spirit and that we'll all learn and grow together. Sorry, one more introductory comment before we get into the message itself. And, and this is maybe uh, a word of warning in some respects. 1 John is not for the faint of heart, as I discovered this week. It is a bit more meaty. And our responsibility will be to to try to cut up this meat into chewable parts, something that we can then chew on and swallow and digest and learn and grow from as as it is. It is fairly theological at times. But that shouldn't scare us, because really... When we understand theology, it lends itself to learning and growing and really going to another level in terms of growing as a Christian and understanding what it then means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we should never be afraid of that. But make no mistake about it. This will be challenging. And I don't think it's challenging because it will be difficult to understand. I don't think it's that. But because it will challenge superficial faith. 1 John is about having certainty in a very uncertain world. And it really answers the question time and time and time again, how can I be absolutely sure that I am a Christian? And is there anything more important to be sure about? When eternal life is at stake, don't we want to know with absolute certainty? Don't we also then want to know If belief in Jesus Christ is real and true, then how should we then live as a result of that? And I think we are just going to be scratching the surface of this book and uh, and really being in for a, a real treat for this. And so I hope you stick with us and come with an anticipation and excitement to learn and to grow. It's always good when we study a book to know some of the background. Why did John write this letter? Whenever we study the Bible, and especially when we study a specific letter as we are now in, this, in its entirety, we do really need to know the background. Knowing why the letter was written in the first place. <clears throat> knowing some of the context. You know, having some insider information, as it were, helps us then to understand specific parts of the letter we will find ourselves then having some aha moments. Like, oh, oh, so that's why he wrote what he wrote. And, you know, that makes perfect sense now. And, oh, oh, now I get it. But we do know that John, the disciple of Jesus, was the author. And so let's start with what we know about him. This John, he was the son of Zebedee. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He also wrote the fourth gospel. He wrote two more letters, uh, creatively titled Second John and Third John. Um, And then he wrote the last book of the Bible as well, Revelation. This is the one who reclined next to Jesus at the Last Supper. 
This is the one who stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. He was the one to whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to. So you have to know right up front that John is writing from a very personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you're dying and you say to your best friend, it will probably be your best friend, hey, please, take care of my mother. There's something significant about that. This is the one who beat Peter to the empty tomb on the first morning. And incidentally, he wrote that about himself. So I, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. He also saw, spoke with, and ate breakfast on the beach with Jesus after his resurrection. And he's also the one who referred to himself as the one Jesus loved. I kind of love that about him. There is some difficulty in narrowing down when John wrote this letter. The safest thing to say is that it was probably somewhere between 70 and 90 A.D. And then if you were to really pin me down, I'd probably say 80 A.D. But it is thought that most Christians had left Jerusalem around 67 A.D., just before the destruction of the city by Rome. The Christians then were scattered all over, but John is thought to have settled in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. There's also evidence that he planted or or helped plant other churches in the area. And increasingly, this this letter, or interestingly, this letter isn't written to a specific church like so many of the New Testament letters. It was likely a letter just written to the Christians in general and was circulated among several churches with the intent that it would be shared with all of the Christians in this area and not just from a specific church. Now, I don't share those dates as simply a historical record or to bore you with details, but to just try to point out the fact that this letter was written at least about 50 years after the death of Jesus, which then also leads us to conclude that John is rather elderly when he wrote this letter. And if you add that bit of information to the obvious way that he expresses his love and his care for the people to whom he's writing, he repeatedly uses phrases like, my dear children and dear friends. And as you look at those things, this picture starts to emerge emerge of an elderly, fatherly, loving, kind, kind of pastoral person. I thought of another name for a person like that. Grandpa. That's right. Just get a picture of Grandpa John. That's who's writing this letter to Christians. And from the time of Jesus, there were already several generations, all the way down to our generation. And so while today we are far removed from this setting by, by time and by space, we can read it as if it was written to us and for us, and then ask, so what does this mean for us today? But if we just step back into that time and place for a moment and look around with our imagination a little bit, we might see Grandpa John sitting on a stool with people in their 20s and 30s and 40s, like many of you. And some wished you were 40. But anyways, but there's this group of probably very young 
and young believers gathered around, sitting on the floor, listening intently to Grandpa John tell stories. What was it like at the Last Supper? What was your gut reaction when, when, somebody, when you said that somebody was going to betray you or was going to betray Jesus? What were you thinking then? What about those miracles? And they got to hear from this credible witness because these were people who weren't even alive when Jesus had died, but they knew that John was there. And so he had this authentic credibility about him. But if we are asking the question, why did John write this letter? We need to know more than who wrote it, John, and when, when he wrote it, 70 to 90 A.D., and where he uh, wrote it, Ephesus. There was likely a, a specific purpose or a reason. You know, sure, sometimes we might write a letter to a friend just because, but more often than not, there was something that needs to be addressed. And so this is kind of the, the re of the letter or the, the subject of the email. There was a real problem that the church was facing. I, I won't get into too much detail on this because we're likely going to come back to it again and again. And the issue itself appears to be somewhat complex. And the way that John begins to, to write even about this is, is somewhat circular. And so you, it's not linear argument. He, he sort, of, sort of flows around and he, he comes back to the issue around. And then he goes somewhere else. And then he comes back to this issue again. And so we're just left trying to put all the pieces together. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he refers to false prophets. And so that's a big clue for us. Earlier in chapter 2 and verse 26, he refers to people who were trying to lead his children astray. And so there was this dangerous group of people, and they caused John great concern. It's really the concern of any parent who worries about their child getting in with the wrong group of friends and then being led off course. And in chapter 2, verse 19, there's another clue about this problem that they were facing. John writes, These people left our churches but they never really belonged to us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. And so this group of false teachers, they didn't come from the outside. They, they weren't attacking the church from the outside. This wasn't persecution. No, this was a group of people from the inside. And it was likely that their goal wasn't initially to like, destroy Christianity. They probably had good intentions. They just thought, we're going to be improving on it. And it was subtle. And it was seductive. And people were being led astray. And John, with his great grandpa, fatherly, pastoral concern, was concerned about his children being led astray. Again, I won't get into too many more specific details other than to say this. That these false teachers were presenting new beliefs that in essence involved denying a couple of things. One was, they denied that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that he had come in the flesh. And especially the fact that he had come in the flesh was a, it was a big deal for them in terms of what they were, they were undermining. In other words, they denied the incarnation. They denied God becoming man while remaining fully God. 
we're going to get into the Christmas season where we're going to hear that over and over again. Emmanuel, God with us. This was Jesus who, who, who lived and took on flesh and lived among us, John writes in his Gospel. And they denied that because they believed that the Spirit is good and that physical matter is, is bad. And so why would God then take on a physical body? It didn't make sense to them. So they said, well, it could not have happened. And by doing that, we're really denying and undermining one of the, the key doctrines of the Christian faith. And if that wasn't bad enough, they deny that Jesus' death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Now that's, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? If they start to question whether Jesus' death actually accounted for and covered all of our sin. And so... That's why you'll hear John write repeatedly about sin and, and about the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we have this problem, you know, a Christ, early Christianity in crisis. And there's disunity and division. And, and there's this group that left, but, but they were still undermining the faith, going around spreading a false doctrine, causing confusion by teaching a knowledge of God that somehow bypassed Jesus. That you could know God, but you didn't need to have anything to do with Jesus. We do know that John was very passionate about this. Because one moment you hear this tender, loving, my dear little children. And the next moment he rips into his opponents as children of the devil. He calls them deceivers and liars. He doesn't mince any words. But he does so for good reason. His desire was really for both sound doctrine and a vibrant community of faith. And so his first concern was to protect his children and to encourage love and fellowship among them. And so John is writing to try to restore this fellowship and the joy that they once had in their relationship and understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus. He takes the perspective that a, the right understanding of Jesus would then inform how we would then live. And really, the incarnation, God becoming man, right? In Matthew, as Jesus is being introduced, they will call him Jesus because the very name Jesus meant that he would save his people from their sins. That, friends, is the, one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. And when we embrace this Jesus... Sharing him then with others should be the focus of our lives together. If this is who Jesus is, who came to save his people from their sins, and we've been saved, then we have a responsibility to tell others about him. But he also writes, because he has a desire to see certain qualities produced in, in his readers. Because there's no question that in the big picture, John is, is writing to address this very real and present danger in the church. But he has another reason, or reasons really, for writing this letter. You see, John is passionate about seeing his children grow and develop some of these important qualities. And, and here, too, there's clues throughout the letter. And so you kind of have to read it from beginning to end. And that's going to be my homework assignment for you, by the way. 
I think it would be great if you sat down and at least tried to make it a goal at one time this week or two times this week or whatever you can do to read through this, this letter from beginning to end. Because it's when you see the whole picture, you start to see, oh yeah, this is what he said this. And, and you start to put the pieces of the puzzle together a little bit. But there are some important clues when we read the letter this way. And the first is that, there's, that, that John has a desire to see the quality of joy develop in the life of his readers. Joy. Joy is, don't you, joy is one of those things that, that, um, that I think we really know when we don't have it. And we also really know when we do have it. That, that there's just, there's something about having a deep-rooted joy that only comes from Jesus Christ and walking and living in obedience with Him. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he writes this, Here's the clue. We write this to make our joy complete. This is why he's writing. Just to make our joy complete. And our means everyone. He's including himself in this. In some translations that you might be reading say, your joy. But whatever the case is, the writing of 1 John should produce joy. And I'm absolutely confident that as this study unfolds, the meaning and application is going to become clear. I have no doubt that our lives are going to be marked by a deeper joy as we grow in our relationship with Jesus and with one another. And we're going to see this just develop over these next few weeks. I honestly am confident of that. The second quality that John wants to see in his readers is holiness. We don't hear about holiness so much anymore, but look at verse 1 of chapter 2, what he says. He says, My dear children... There it is again, right? I write this to you. Okay, why is he writing? So that you will not sin. And that verse has always jumped out at me. Because it doesn't say, I'm writing this so that you will sin less. Or, or I'm writing this so that you will not sin very much. He comes right out and says, I'm writing this so that you will not sin sin. It's absolutely clear. And yet sometimes I, I get the feeling that in my life, if I just sin less this week than the week before, that I'm, you know, I'm making good progress and that I've achieved some goal and, and maybe I'll get my gold star then. But Jesus here turns all of that upside down and says, listen, your mission should you choose to accept it, is to not sin. Yes, an impossible mission. Because that's why he then right away says, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And in the previous chapter, right at the end where Pastor Ken read this morning, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is not about sinless perfection. But it is about having that as standard as a goal. And he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. But even an impossible mission should be attempted. 
And so John's call to a standard of sinlessness is to pursue holiness. And then to know that when we blow it, we have the confidence that Jesus forgives our sin. And that, my friends, I think is pretty cool. Because he says, this is the goal. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. But just because it's tough and hard, don't just dismiss it. That should be the goal. But then if you blow it, if you don't make it, I'm there to forgive your sin. Because I love you. That's why I died on the cross for you. One more quality. I call it confidence, but it really is a deep assurance of our faith. Because in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's huge, isn't it? Not just kind of hoping that we have eternal life. Kind of thinking that maybe if everything lines up and I'm a really good person and I keep, you know, I dot my I's and cross my T's and do that, then, then, then I might have eternal life. Because no, I'm writing for the express purpose that you would know. Know with absolute certainty that you have eternal life. And knowing that we have eternal life is the assurance and the certainty that we long for, isn't it? I'm confident that as we study this letter together, we're going to grow in our knowledge and our experience of these qualities of joy and of holiness and of this assurance. Because these are some pretty amazing qualities and something that I'm looking forward to seeing develop in my life and in yours. And I hope you will as well. And so now we're going to look at the first four verses because that's all introduction. It's short, believe me. I won't go into much detail. This first opening statement, these first four verses, is very important. Because the whole letter is important, but these first four letters, or first, first four verses, John is just kind of laying a foundation, pouring the foundation, as it were, for the rest of the letter. And he wants to make it very clear that we are dealing with this certainty. And this certainty that we have is all about Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've picked it up already, but Jesus and what we believe about him and how we live for him is absolutely crucial. Jesus is a big deal. And Jesus is what we're about. And John's letter makes this clear. He says there in verse 1, that which was from the beginning refers to Jesus. And the word of life refers to Jesus. And in verse 2, the life and the eternal life. These are all phrases where he's describing Jesus. Because Jesus is ultimately the message of 1 John. John is not writing about a nice theory. He's writing about a Jesus who really was. And he tells us that there never was a time when Jesus did not exist. He says, that which was from the beginning. But look at how John supports this. He says, I want you to know this. And he starts to speak very personally. I want you to know this. I heard him. I heard him with my own ears. He journeyed with them for three years. Everything that Jesus said and taught, John heard. 
He was there. He goes, I saw Him with my own eyes. Up close and personal. He says, I looked at Him. You think, well, saw and look, what's the, is He just repeating Himself? No, it, it, it's like now He's saying, this wasn't just kind of a seeing Him off in the distance. I looked at Him intently. It's kind of like when you go through the, the produce aisle and, you, and you, you, you pick up the fruit. Because, yeah, you see, the, you, know, you see the apples over there, but you're not sure what kind of condition they're in. So you wander over to the apples and you pick up the apples and you look at them a little, a little bit more intently. He says, I looked at him. And I touched him. Even after he rose from the dead. think John had any doubt whatsoever at that point, believing that what he heard and saw and experienced was absolutely true? Absolutely. He knew it. And we don't live in that time and space. And I think we all wish, oh, if we could just see him, if we could just touch him, if we could just hear him, you can. Maybe not figuratively, not literally, I mean, but you can. God speaks all the time. He speaks through His Word. He gives thoughts, impressions. He whispers quietly. We listen and we hear. But it does mean at times we just have to carve out that time and space and sit down with our Bible and say, God, speak to me. I want to know you as John knew you. I know I can't reach out and and touch you. I can't look at you. But open my eyes, like we sang this morning, open my eyes so that I can see, so that I can have this assurance. You see, there is no more credible witness And do you see here how even in these opening statements, but what I said to you earlier about the false teaching that was coming, how just in these opening statements, he right away attacks it, but he's not so much making it all about attacking the false doctrine, he's making it about encouraging his readers and saying, listen, take it from me. I was there. Jesus is real. He really is who he said he is. And being in relationship with Him and with others who believe makes all of the difference in our lives and in our world. He was with God in the very beginning. Jesus. He came to earth. He lived. He died. And He rose again. And John says, how do I know? Because He hugged me that morning on the beach. And I was standing at the cross at the foot of the cross when he took his last breath. I was there. And you might be asking yourself, does it really matter what we believe? John in this letter answers that with an unmistakable yes, absolutely it matters. Because what we believe about Jesus affects our relationship with one another. John says that he's telling them about Jesus. In verse 3 he says, So that you also may have fellowship with us. 
so he's drawing them in because I'm a follower of Jesus, and if you believe in Jesus, then we're going to have fellowship with one another. And in case we miss this sort of communal nature of our faith, he says, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And one commentator used this phrase, and I really liked it. He just said, Christianity is a triangular faith. And I think that's a good picture for us to have. I have a relationship with Jesus, and you have a relationship with Jesus, and we have a relationship with each other on a horizontal level. But because we each have a relationship with Jesus, it completely impacts and makes a difference in the relationship that we have on the horizontal And the common faith that we then share is far more important than any other personal interests or hobbies that we may share. Right? So sure, when we get together, we we can talk about the Oilers. But really, why would we want to do that? I mean, what's there to talk about? Sure, they did win, and I kind of wrecked this part of the illustration, but let's pick on the Eskimos. I mean, that's just miserable, isn't it? It'll be over soon. And we can talk about that great deal that we got at Winners, or the latest fashions, or the latest concert that we went to. There is no end to the things that as Christians we can talk about. But you know what really draws us together? It's our common faith in Jesus Christ, and our common purpose to share Him with others. When we get together as Christians, we should really be talking about how Jesus is impacting every area of our lives. Because what does that do? It encourages us. It spurs us on. It it motivates us then in how we should live. And that's why I'm saying our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with one another are deeply impacted by that. One, one quick story, and I know we've just gone a little bit longer here, but just this past Tuesday, we were out running with some friends, and, and just a general question, how was your day? Oh, it was kind of crazy. And started talking about what had happened that night and that morning, and it's in your Sunday news if you look, looked ahead, but um, Gord Erickson, who was, a, who was a missionary last week, if you were here, he gets a frantic phone call late Monday night. He was staying at my place from his wife. And the hostel and the school that they were at um, had, uh, had been the target of an armed robbery. That seven thieves came in, some of them wearing masks, some of them having guns. They took the guards that they have there overnight um, hostage. They, they, they took them over to the school. And it appears that there was some prior knowledge that where the safes were and where money was kept. And so there was a significant amount, amount of money that was stolen through all of that. That was kind of a crazy way to go to bed. And I know Gore didn't sleep much, and in the morning he goes, I, I have to get back. And he had planned to visit with other churches and pastors throughout this week and go back on Friday and then travel to Cameroon on Monday. And he's already back there because of the, 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 the concern for his family and that school was starting again and needing to be back there. But you know, even in a story like that of tragedy in a sense and and robbery, you you still can see God's hand of protection. Denise and the kids were unharmed, other than some extreme, stressful, heart palpitations, whatever. They were okay. 
And you see God's hand of protection on that. And then that led to another story of, of my own journey coming out of Cameroon one time. And, and, and we just ran and talked. We talked about how God protects us. How He cares for His children. Friends, let's do more of that. Do it around the brunch table. Do it in a home group. Do it in a triad. But let's grow in our love and in our fellowship with one another. Let's pray together. Father, I absolutely believe that as we study further in 1 John, we will be encountering Jesus perhaps in a way that we haven't thought about for a long time or never have. And the question that we all have to ask ourselves, even this morning already, is do we know Jesus? Because if we know Him and His grace and His love, we will be transformed. Lord, I pray for my friends here today. And they are dear friends. Lord, as pastors here, we are so blessed to have an amazing congregation like this. And to be able to call them friends. We may not know everybody well, may not know everybody by name, but we're here and we're on this journey together. And we do care. Lord, what I want, nothing more for them, is what John wanted for his children. So his joy would be complete. That they would follow hard after Jesus. And that they would live in love and relationship with him and with one another. Lord, help us come to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.